August after the Oklahoma City bombing. Essentially, what happened was that the Clinton administration proposed a sort of general anti-terrorism law that included the things that the ADL wanted that essentially targeted Palestinians, but also included things that you would expect, like expanded law enforcement authority, regulation of, of firearms and explosives and so on. And the House-led, um, sorry, the Republican-led House of Representatives essentially gutted that bill and replaced it with all of the provisions that they wanted. Um, and immediately, uh, the Democrats and the ADL pushed back, lobbied very hard, and the parts of the original bill only the ones that pertained to so-called international terrorism that were essentially targeting Palestinians were put back into the bill. So it's a really sobering example of how anti-Palestinian animus is one of the most enduring um, areas of bipartisan appeal in Washington. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. We're going to link to your report. Daryl Lee, lawyer, associate professor of anthropology and social sciences at the University of Chicago, and Dima Khalidi, founder and director of Palestine Legal. The new briefing paper is Anti-Palestinian at the Core, the Origins and Growing Dangers of U.S. Anti-Terrorism Law. That does it for our show. To see all our video and audio podcasts, you can go to democracynow.org. And congratulations to our whole team as we just surpassed 2 million YouTube viewers. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Faust, Mike Burke, Dina Desdichur, Doug Caduce, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Tune in to KBOO throughout February, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. for Black History Future Month, our special programming series in celebration of Black heritage. This series aimed to celebrate all aspects of the Black lived experience, from contemporary, political, and social issues to understanding how history impacts our present. Again, that's Black History Future Month, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. throughout the month of February, where you will hear interviews from Black creatives, artists, activists, revolutionaries, KBU hosts, musicians, and more, here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Thank you for tuning in to KBOO Community Radio during our special programming campaign, All Thrills, No Frills, Volume 3. This February and March, you will hear different marathons and series, all brought to you by our talented programmers. If you'd like to help KBOO reach our $22,000 goal by March 16th, Go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to the number 44321 right now. We thank you and you're welcome. And now your daily volunteer produced community newscast, the KBOO Evening News. 
Coming up on the KBOO Evening News, Oregon racial justice groups say the legislature's efforts to recriminalize drugs will be disastrous for communities of color. Portland's police union floats a ballot measure to undo popular accountability measures. And in international news, a U.S. Air Force member sets himself on fire in protest of Israel's war on Gaza. This is the KBOO Evening News for Monday, February 26, 2024. I'm Michelle Coppola. Civil rights groups and racial justice leaders in Oregon say that recriminalizing drugs through House Bill 4002 won't do what lawmakers say it will. The latest amended version of the bill came out on Friday. Advocates say it was negotiated in a backroom deal between lawmakers, law enforcement and prosecutors, but without the input of black and brown people who would be most impacted by the recriminalization. The bill would institute jail time for possession, and while lawmakers have touted the deflection mechanisms in the bill, those mechanisms have been criticized as costly and ultimately unavailable in much of the state. That's because the law does not require counties to set up deflection programs to keep people out of jail and put them into treatment. Here's what Mercedes Elizalde, policy director at the Latino Network, said at a press conference earlier today. There is no guarantee that criminalization will improve the conditions that people in our communities are most concerned about. Multiple studies have in fact shown the opposite to be true. But we can guarantee that there will be a racially biased application of new criminal sanctions as there are with current criminal prosecutions and the collateral consequences of those criminalizations. The Oregon Supreme Court Chief Justice told lawmakers that the current criminal system is not set up and does not have sufficient staff to implement these new criminal sanctions. The Supreme Court Chief Justice told lawmakers and the court to anticipate a high failure rate with these types of deflection programs that are imagined in House Bill 4002. And that was before learning that the programs imagined in this bill will be inconsistently utilized and applied on a case-by-case basis and a zip code-by-zip code basis. To this day in Oregon, where the population is 14% Latinx, there's only one inpatient facility for substance use services that can serve Spanish-speaking men. There are zero such facilities that can serve women who speak only Spanish. Instead of solving this problem, we are creating new ones. This will delay care further, longer wait times for services, and will repeat the jail to streets revolving door. It is dishonest for people to say that deflection into treatment is going to happen as a result of this bill because there is no requirement to create these programs. And even if they do exist, police and prosecutors are not required to use them. That was Mercedes Elizalde from the Latino Network. These groups also raised concerns about the wide discretion that the bill gives to law enforcement, including a provision that would seemingly open the door to stop and frisk tactics. Here's Sandy Chung, director of the ACLU of Oregon. This bill literally codifies the encouragement of stop and frisk type activities into the bill because it says that police officers should basically address anyone who's even suspected of having a banned substance. So what does this mean? We've seen this before. This is not rhetorical. This is our history, the history of Oregon and the United States. Black and brown people will be stopped at higher rates. And we already have this data in Oregon. And when police stop black and brown people, there are high and horrible probabilities 
of police misconduct and violence. That was Sandy Chung with ACLU Oregon. The LTLU supports alternatives to the latest amendment to the bill called HB 4002-24. Chung explains the accountability measures her organization has proposed. Measures to keep our government accountable with this bill should include, one, required deflection. This would require all counties, police, and prosecutors to create and engage in deflection and diversion pathways to treatment. It cannot be optional. Two, planned implementation period. This means that criminal penalties do not take effect until every county has established a qualified deflection program that is accessible to all people in that county. Three, possession and plain view. Lawmakers should define the criminal offense to possession of a controlled substance in plain view. This provides tools to police while limiting their ability to harass black, brown, low-income, and disabled people. And fourth, sunset. Lawmakers should set an end date for possession and plain view as a criminal offense, at which time lawmakers can review the intended and unintended consequences, impacts, and costs of criminalization, and determine if the criminal offense should be continued. HB 4002 is the subject of a public hearing that started at 5 p.m. this evening. Livestream video of the Joint Committee on Addiction and Community Safety Response can be found online at OregonLegislature.gov. Portland's rank-and-file police union, the Portland Police Association, announced that it is taking steps to put two measures on the November, November ballot that would drastically alter the future of police oversight and accountability in Portland. Cable reporters Sam Bowman and Jasmine have more. Two lawyers affiliated with the Portland Police Union have submitted an initiative petition for the November ballot that proposes a drastic overhaul of the city charter language that defines and empowers a new community-led police oversight board. In the 2020 general election, 82% of Portland voters passed Measure 26-217, which amended the city charter to require the creation of an independent police oversight and accountability board. Major pieces of this required board were that it have the power to subpoena police officers, that it be able to discipline officers, that it review the vast majority of complaints against the police, that it have no members who are current or former police, and that it have a budget pegged at 5% of the police bureau budget to ensure that its funding was independent of changing political winds. The All-Volunteer Police Accountability Commission, or PAC, worked for over two years to create a detailed proposal for the new system. The city attorney encountered this late last year with a drastically scaled back proposal that arguably still remained within the letter of the 2020 charter changes. Both proposals would be abandoned if voters approved the new PPA initiative. The changes that would make to the city charter would eliminate or replace most of what made the 2020 measure a uniquely powerful concept for police oversight. The four-page petition was submitted last week by Will Aitchison and Anil Correa and includes charter changes that would add new responsibilities for the board to issue annual reports on police officer recruitment, retention, and training. The new language completely removes the prohibition on former police officers serving on the board or staffing the office. It removes the ability of the board to compel officer testimony, impose discipline, make recommendations on policy and procedure changes, 
And it also limits the jurisdictional scope of complaint investigations in ways that are not entirely clear to non-lawyers. Also striking in the petition language is the removal of the community-centered focus and the priority on continued transparency and access to information. The original charter language called for the board to make provisions to ensure that board membership included representation from diverse communities, quote, particularly those who have lived experience with systemic racism and those who have experienced mental illness, addiction, or alcoholism, end quote. In the proposed language from the PPA lawyers, that entire diversity statement has been replaced with, quote, various professional backgrounds and from different geographic areas within the city, end quote. Another big sticking point at contentious city council sessions related to the work of the PAC and their proposed code package was the charter language pegging a budget for the new board at 5% of the annual police budget. Not surprisingly, that budget floor has been removed from the HSN version, which would put the board's budget at the council's discretion. This is not the first time the Portland Police Association has collected signatures to fight against public oversight of police. Will Aitchison was also the PPA's lawyer back in 1982 when the city created its first official body dedicated to police oversight, the Police Internal Investigations Auditing Committee. Despite the new committee having a very limited scope and minimal public involvement, the PPA put a measure on the ballot to eliminate it. Though that measure failed, the committee itself was widely seen as ineffective and was replaced by the current independent police review system in 2001. If the language in the initiative petition is adopted as is, the community would have less insight and input into police accountability than it has had since at least the 1990s. The backers of this initiative petition will need to collect over 40,000 signatures by July 5th, at which point the initiative will be referred to Portland City Council. The council can then vote to refer the measure to the ballot, put a competing measure on the ballot, or adopt the measure as is. We reached out to the Portland Police Association attorneys for comment on this story, but have not yet heard back. For KBU Evening News, I'm Sam Bowman. And I'm Jasmine. Yesterday, an active duty Air Force member set himself on fire outside of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., in protest of the war in Gaza. In the past 143 days, Israel has killed nearly 30,000 Palestinians. Aaron Bushnell was 25 years old. In video footage, Bushnell said he will, quote, no longer be complicit in genocide, and that he is, quote, about to engage in an extreme act of protest. But compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers is not extreme at all, end quote. Bushnell was pronounced dead at 10 p.m. on Sunday. His death is not the first self-immolation in protest of the war in Gaza. In December, another man set himself on fire in front of the Israeli consulate in Atlanta. Since the Vietnam War, self-immolation has been a dramatic but rare act of protest. Oregon could get access to food benefits for nearly 300,000 children during the upcoming summer months, but lawmakers first have to approve funding for the program. KBOO's Grace Benson has more on the story. A program that would provide food benefits to kids during the summer still needs funding approval from the Oregon legislature. The state has already approved the summer EBT program, but they need to agree to pay for half the administrative costs in order to get access to federal funds. It would help the families of nearly 300,000 kids receive about $40 for food each month over the summer. 
Charlie Krause with Partners for a Hunger-Free Oregon says child hunger spikes during the summer months. When they're fed throughout the school year and they have access to meals throughout the school year, it's only fair that they have access to food throughout the summer. Their income level doesn't drastically change in the summer. They still need access to support and access to food. Krause says there have been bipartisan calls to fund the program. The state would get access to about $35 million a year from the federal government for benefits. The legislative session is scheduled to adjourn on March 10th. Matt Newell-Ching with Oregon Food Bank says summer EBT benefits would be especially helpful for families in rural areas. While we love and are big proponents of summer meal sites, we also know that a lot of them are inaccessible. And so this new program was meant specifically to address gaps like that. Newell-Ching says everything else is in place. They just need the final piece from lawmakers. Ensuring that Oregon contributes its share of the administrative funding makes this all happen and builds on that groundwork. And so basically we're asking legislators to do the right thing for 294,000 kids, make sure that that funding is there so we can get this across the finish line and kids can get the support during the summer. For KBU News and the Oregon News Service, I'm Grace Benson. In other state legislative news, Oregon state senators passed a bill to require political campaigns to label if audio or images generated by artificial intelligence is used in their communications. Senate Bill 1571 is part of a larger movement in state legislatures across the country to protect elections and voters from AI-generated misinformation. It passed 23 to 7. Democratic Senator Aaron Woods from Wilsonville is the chief sponsor of the bill. Woods said, quote, as we've already seen in our elections, there are dangerous consequences when our regulations are playing catch up to technology and misinformation. We need to get out front of these threats to protect the integrity of our democracy. And I think this is a great first step. This bill will help arm Oregonians with the knowledge they need to make their own informed decisions at the ballot box, end quote. The bill to disclose AI content in voter communications now heads to the Oregon House for consideration. You're listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for an in-depth report on Electrify PDX, supporting renters and homeowners to transition to 100% renewable electricity. At 6, it's Labor Radio. At 6.30, it's Prison Pipeline. Then at 7, LTAR. Let's talk about race. Tonight's weather, there is a winter storm advisory in effect for snow above 1,000 feet. Otherwise, rain for the rest of us and a low of 36. Tomorrow will be rainy with a high of 45. Today in history, in 1616, Galileo Galilei is formally banned by the Roman Catholic Church from teaching or defending the view that Earth orbits the sun. The quote of the day is from French Romantic writer Victor Hugo, born this day in 1802. He said, quote, To put everything in balance is good. To put everything in harmony is better. A new program in Washington Public Library system is helping people monitor their blood pressure at home. The American Heart Association has collaborated with Timberland Regional Library for the Libraries with Heart program, which allows people to check out at-home blood pressure monitoring kits. Andrea Heisel with Timberland Regional Library says the communities that they serve, people sometimes have to travel long distances to get to the nearest doctor or even a store that offers a blood pressure monitoring machine. 
getting these into people's hands so they can take them home and use them at their own convenience is another amazing resource that libraries can offer to people. And we're just really happy to be able to offer that resource to our rural communities, especially. Monitoring blood pressure is important for ensuring people have healthy hearts and preventing serious threats like heart failure and stroke. Timberland Regional Library has 29 libraries across five counties in southwest Washington. The program is supported by Washington State-based MultiCare Health System. Carissa LeClaire with MultiCare says having a way to test blood pressure at home is important. Patients may have a white coat syndrome where they're really nervous and they experience stress when they're in the doctor's office. They have a chance to take the kit home and monitor their blood pressures there. Or maybe they have a family history of high blood pressure and they want to watch and see what their blood pressure is. LeClaire notes also that nearly half of Washingtonians have high blood pressure, but it is controllable through such means as medications, lifestyle changes, and a healthy diet. She encourages people to follow up with their medical provider for a proper diagnosis after checking their blood pressure. Donald Trump wins the South Carolina primary, but there's mixed feelings about what a second Trump could Trump, Trump term could mean. And President Biden addresses border issues with governors. With more on those stories, it's Edwin J. Vieira with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. November 5th will be our new Liberation Day, but for the liars and cheaters and fraudsters and censors and imposters who have commandeered our government, it will be their Judgment Day. Speaking to a friendly audience at the Conservative Political Action Conference, former President Donald Trump says he expects an easy victory in November. He swept the South Carolina primary, beating presidential rival Nikki Haley in her home state by 20 points. Trump is scrambling to post nearly half a billion dollars in legal bonds for New York civil judgments. But an NBC News exit poll finds two-thirds of South Carolina Republican primary voters consider Trump fit for president, even if he's convicted of a crime. Haley did get around 40% of the state's vote, similar to his share of the vote in New Hampshire, which shows many in the GOP object to Trump, even as he looks unstoppable. Despite her losses, Haley says she's staying in the race until Super Tuesday. South Carolina has spoken. We're the fourth state to do so. In the next 10 days, another 21 states and territories will speak. They have the right to a real choice. Many former staffers of the Trump White House are warning against returning him to power. Cassidy Hutchinson was the assistant to Mark Meadows, his chief of staff. She says the people who stopped Trump's worst ideas the first time would be gone. In a second Trump term, there's not going to be people who are willing to stick up for the truth. There will be people who are willing to execute Donald Trump's plan and Donald Trump's plan only. Hutchinson cites a plan by people backing the former president to strip career agency employees and technical experts of civil service protections, then fire them and replace them with loyalists. But Trump backer and conspiracy theorist Jack Posobiec, also speaking at CPAC, says he wants to see American democracy overthrown. I just wanted to say, look, welcome to the end of democracy. We're here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will, we, we will endeavor to, forget, to get rid of it and replace it with this right here. Media reports say hostage release and Gaza ceasefire negotiations are making solid progress. In spite of that, and pressure from the Biden administration, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says their military plans include a push into the crowded southern Gaza city of Rafah. 
Meanwhile, President Joe Biden is reassuring state governors that his administration will tackle the problems with the immigration system. After a bipartisan border deal fell apart in the Senate, Biden is urging the House to take it up, describing it as a big challenge that's taken years to develop. These reforms made America a nation of laws, a nation of immigrants, and the strongest economy in the world. But something changed. Over time, our laws and our resources haven't kept up with our immigration system, and it's broken. And our politics has failed to fix it. I'm Edwin J. Vieira for Pacific Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. A new report says that philanthropic organizations need to re-examine the source of their wealth, which says it often comes from systemic racism and discrimination. And it stresses the need to repair the harm done to black communities. Called Cracks in the Foundation, the report from the National Committee on Responsive Philanthropy examines at the histories of eight grant makers. Catherine Ponce is a research manager for special projects with the NCRP. There's four categories of harm we focus on. It's like anti-black media and rhetoric, housing discrimination and segregation, unemployment and hidden opportunity, and then healthcare, both mental and physical. The report urges grant makers to reckon with their past, connect with communities that were harmed, work to repair the damage, make sure any harm doesn't continue, and advocate for funding for reparations. While the report focuses on the Washington, D.C. area, it mentions California's task force to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans as an encouraging development. Han Lee is the co-CEO of IF, a foundation for radical possibility, which commissioned the report and is one of the institutions examined. She says her organization once believed the money to endow the foundation came from a health association jointly created by black and Jewish workers, when in fact that agency initially excluded black workers. Every foundation has an origin story that we believe ties the wealth that generated the endowments for those foundations to racialized capitalism, to structural racism, and we all have an obligation to know that truth, to reckon with the truth, and to repair the harm. Deborah Watkins heads ABEN, which stands for a Black Education Network, and is based in San Jose. She says to play a role in repair, grantmakers should invest in black-led organizations, which still only get just a fraction of the billions that are given annually. Foundations that have amassed their wealth as a result of harm done to black people over decades now have an obligation to fund black-led work and also to ameliorate conditions under which black people still live. That was Deborah Watkins with a Ben. Rosebud Sioux leaders want to remove their flag from the South Dakota State Capitol just over a month after it was first placed there. With that story and more, it's Antonio Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Rosebud Sioux Tribal Council wants to pull its tribal flag from the South Dakota Capitol building. The move comes just over a month after the flag was placed in the state capitol rotunda. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger has more. The Rosebud Tribal Council voted unanimously to direct the tribal president to retrieve the flag from the state capitol rotunda. The flag retrieval comes in response to a special address by Republican Governor Kristi Noem to the legislature about the southern border. In that speech, she alluded to a gang called, quote, ghost dancers and tribal members getting involved in Mexican drug cartel activity. 
Both Rosebud and Standing Rock tribal flags were placed in the Capitol Rotunda at the beginning of session. Representative Eric Emery is Suchangu Lakota and was one of the lawmakers who presented the Rosebud flag to Governor Nome during that ceremony. Emery says the state should respect the tribe's request. We graciously presented that flag uh, a few weeks ago with the understanding that it would bring some cooperation from the state in between the tribes. Um, unfortunately, you know, that's, that's not what's happening anymore. Um, and I, you know, I have to stand behind the RST's position on wanting their flag back. Emery says he'd like to see more dialogue between the governor and the tribe. The governor's office has not responded to immediate requests for comment. In a statement to Kello News, a spokesperson for the governor says they'll continue to honor the Rosebud Sioux tribe by flying the flag in the Capitol Rotunda. For National Native News, I'm Lee Strubinger in Pierre. Leaders of the Forest County Potawatomi gave the 20th annual State of Tribes Address in Wisconsin last week. While mostly highlighting cooperation with the state, tribal officials did say more needs to be done. Chuck Kornbach of Station WUWM reports. Wisconsin is a politically divided state, but Forest County Potawatomi Tribal Chairman James Crawford thanked Democratic Governor Tony Evers and the Republican-controlled state legislature for joint efforts to address the lack of affordable housing, worker shortages, and federal Medicaid reimbursements in tribal communities. Crawford says one problem in need of more attention is the trafficking of Native females. In tribal communities all across the country, including right here in Wisconsin, Native women and girls are being exploited, trafficked, and subjected to violence at disproportionately high rates. Crawford says the Wisconsin Attorney General and members of a task force on missing and murdered Indigenous women are trying to reduce the problem. Also speaking at the state capitol event was Forest County Potawatomi Elder Eugene Shawno Sr., who gave the opening prayer. After speaking in his native language, Shono translated to English, including a concern about Mother Earth. We're the ones that are abusing her and creating this illnesses that we're getting to COVID, cancer, tuberculosis. We know it's going to continue finding new diseases because we're not helping our mom stay clean to keep providing for us. Shano says Mother Earth will never give up, but everyone needs to pay attention to her needs. For National Native News, I'm Chuck Quirnbach. Lily Gladstone received outstanding performance by a female actor in a leading role at the Screen Actors Guild Awards over the weekend. She was honored for her role as Molly Burkhart in Killers of the Flower Moon. The native actor made history last month with her Golden Globe win for her role in the film. Up next is the Oscars in March. Gladstone is nominated for Best Actress. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. You're listening to the KBOO Evening News for Monday, February 26, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news stories and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Lisa Loving, Grace Benson, Sam Bowman, and Jasmine. The producer and engineer is Althea Billings. Special thanks to Eric Tegadoff, Antonia Gonzalez, Edwin J. Vieira, Suzanne Potter, and Catherine Carley. The director of 
Evening News is the Steadfast Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash evening news. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Michelle Coppola. All of our KBOO programs, including the Evening News, are supported by our members. If you'd like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm slash give or text kboo to 44321. Stay tuned now for KBOO News In-Depth.